folks, welcome back to episode 27 of the Fearless Flyer. My name's Grant, I'm one of your co-hosts, and my other host is James. Hello James, how are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Good to be back after a couple weeks of not doing recordings, so it's good to get back into it. So in this episode, episode 27, we're going to be having a chat about flight planning. We're going to talk about overflight charges, ETOPS. And we'll talk about those TV displays that you have that show the flight. They generally show it as a curved path instead of a straight line. And we'll finish up talking about airport designs. In the uh, last episode, episode 26, we discussed terrain and the use of the EGPWS system to avoid terrain. Then we also discussed a bit about the TCAS system, uh, which helps aircraft avoid other aircraft. So moving on to this uh, episode. Flight planning really isn't as simple uh, as flying a straight line from A to B. That's true. It should seem like that, but one must take into account things like en-route weather systems, closed-off airspace due to military exercises or conflicts, environmental hazards like volcanoes or tropical storm systems. The wind patterns also have a significant effect on the flight planning route, as does overflight charges from different countries. We generally also have to follow a road system in the air, and we call these roads airways. And these airways, they're much like motorways, but they don't exactly go directly from your departure to your destination. So like going on a longer journey from your home, you'd likely go in a certain direction on the smaller roads to get to a motorway or highway that takes you in the general direction before leaving that motorway or highway to get back onto smaller roads to get to your final destination. And that's similar to how uh, we use airways. Yes. And so from this discussion so far, you can probably work out that there could possibly be many permutations to get an optimum flight plan. And hence the use of a computer plays a significant part in the making of an optimal flight plan for us based on numerous factors. So therefore, it's highly likely that you're not just going to be going simple straight line. On a side note, when computer flight planning uh, took over manual flight planning, the eastbound flights across the North Atlantic, the average fuel consumption was reduced by about 450 kilos or 1,000 pounds per flight. The average flight time uh, reduced by five minutes per flight. Yes. So letting the computer crunch out a flight plan is a damn sight quicker than pilots or flight dispatchers doing it manually. James, talking about overflight charges, do you want to give a few examples of overflight charges? Yes, every country here is different, although some regions have banded together to make some more simple systems, such as the EU, the European Union, that is. Anyway, a few examples of overflight charges. In US-controlled airspace, there's $34.43 per 100 nautical miles and $20.16 per 1,000 nautical miles in the oceanic areas. Now, if you were to fly overfly Cambodia, the overflight charges range from 66 to 476 US dollars, depending on the maximum uh, takeoff weight of the aircraft. Meanwhile, India calculates overflight fees for a rate and then adds on a secondary fixed charge. So you can just imagine the wide sort of array and range of charges, and therefore it might be beneficial for a flight to go around a country as the extra time could significantly offset the overflight charges. Yeah, with all those charges, um, thank goodness for computers, eh? Yeah. So just moving on from that, let's have a quick discussion about ETOPS. So you may have heard of the term ETOPS, which is an acronym for Extended Range Twin Engine Operation Performance Standards. 
Yes. Now, uh, a bit of history to understand what this ETOPS term really means. In 1953, the FAA, that's the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States, had made a 60-minute rule which restricted twin-engine aircraft and that when they were flying, they always had to be within 60 minutes of a diversion or alternate airport. This 60-minute rule was based upon piston engine reliability at the time. You could go further from an Enroute diversion airport, but you needed special permission. Now, in the 1950s, the ICAO, or the International Civil Aviation Organization, recommended a 90-minute diversion time for all aircraft. And this was adopted by many regulatory authorities and airlines out of the United States. Anyway, coming back to the 60-minute rule, as the jet age came into effect, the 60-minute flying time at jet speeds meant the alternate or diversion airports could be a lot further away. So, using the 60-minute rule, Grant, could you just put this into a practical example, just remembering the rule means you have to be within 60 minutes flying time of an airport when flying with one of your two engines inoperative? Say a two-engine jet flies at a speed of 400 miles per hour on one engine. That means it would travel a distance of 400 miles in one hour. So you fly from A to B, which is a straight line distance of 800 miles. If there's no wind at exactly halfway on that journey, you will be 60 minutes flying time from both the departure airport and the arrival airport. This would be a legal flight plan and that you could divert back to your takeoff point or continue to your landing point on one engine. So when it comes to the actual flight planning, you put a circle on the departure airport with a radius of 400 miles around it. Same on the destination airport. And these two circles would intercept exactly at midway along the flight. Yes, that's right. So according to the 1950s ICAO ruling, we're now legal to operate this flight in a straight line. Now, let's say that our flight from A to B is now a distance of 1,600 miles and there's no wind. We would then need a suitable airport bang in the middle of the flight to make this plan legal. If we drew circles of 400 miles radius around the departure and the arrival airports and around that midpoint airport right in the middle, all the circles would touch each other and thus we could fly in a straight line right over the top of that middle alternate airport on towards our destination. So if an engine stopped working after one hour, we could go back to the departure airport or onwards to the midpoint alternate airport. For the mid two hours of the flight, the only airport we could divert to with an engine failure would be that one suitable airport right in the middle. And once we crossed the point equidistance from the middle alternate airport to the destination airport, we could then go on to the destination at this point with just one engine. Yes, that fairly well sums up that example. Now, in the case just mentioned, there will likely never be an alternate diversion airport right in the middle. It will be off to one side of, say, a straight line. We might, in this case, need a number of alternate airports. So we draw circles around these en route alternate airports, and where they touch or overlap is where the flight plan must be planned in order to remain legal. Hence, under the 60-minute rule, the flight plan might prevent you from going in a straight line in order to keep within the 60-minute rule of an en route alternate airport. Examples that are very restrictive due to not having suitable on-route airports are like flying over large uninhabited parts of the Earth's surface, like those covered in water like the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, 
and even over remote areas and parts of uh, the world like Africa. So you just mentioned this uh, sort of was made in the 50s. Does this 60-minute rule still apply to today's aircraft? No, it doesn't. So technology was able to prove itself, and with engine reliability increasing significantly over the years, also with proven maintenance monitoring programs, this 60-minute rule has been extended. So, for example, to get an ETOPS approval for an operator to fly and increase that from 60 minutes to 120 minutes, that's two hours, the aircraft must have demonstrated that historical in-flight shutdown rates are better than one shutdown in every 20,000 hours of flying. And for ETOPS 180, uh, which is 180 minutes, three hours, then the in-flight shutdown rate must be better than one in 50,000 hours flying. And anything in excess of three hours, the in-flight shutdowns must be less than one per 100,000 hours. But uh, I know you did some research on the latest A350. What did you see about that, James, from ETOPS? So the A350 engines are so reliable that it managed to get an ETOPS approval of 370 minutes, which is six hours and 10 minutes. So the engines on that are just extremely reliable. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? So at the time the term ETOPS was introduced, the term ETOPS, it got a colloquial backronym, and we referred to it as pilots, as engines turning or passengers swimming, but no one's been swimming off an ETOPS airplane that I'm aware of. But also, it's not just the engines that have to meet this uh, approval, it's also things such as the fire suppression system. Yeah, that's right. And for example, on the planes I fly, the 777-300ERs extended range, We have six cargo fire extinguishing bottles, and upon a fire indication, two of these are discharged into the cargo hold where the fire is, and after a time delay, the remaining four are discharged at a reduced flow rate over a set period of time, which also equates to the limits of the ETOPS certification. So basically what I'm saying in this case, ETOPS not only applies to twin engine aircraft, but also three or four engine aircraft as well, as they need to meet the fire suppression times in a similar manner to being near a suitable en-route airport. So it appeared that the acronym ETOPS was out of date as it also related to the likes of how long fire suppression could be maintained. So the powers that be changed the name to EROPS, which stands for Extended Range Operations, and not wanting to be left out, the pilots then term this engines running or passengers swimming. So a lot of airlines these days have a sort of map display on the in-flight entertainment that you as a passenger can access during the flight. And it's generally attached to the TV on the back of the seat in front of you. And on longer flights, this looks like the pilot is not really flying in a straight line, but instead a curved path, which seems, well, a lot longer. A classic example of this is, say, a flight from the Middle East to the West Coast of America, like Los Angeles. Now, on a map of the world, the shortest route from the Middle East to Los Angeles would appear to be basically flying west, so basically across the top of North Africa or or the Mediterranean, over the Atlantic, right through the middle of the United States to Los Angeles. Yet the shortest route is actually to leave the Middle East and go due north, go up through Russia, over the North Pole, and come back down the other side of the planet through Canada near Calgary or Vancouver past Seattle and on to Los Angeles. The problem is simply to do with how our round planet is pictured on a flat piece of paper. 
So a globe of the world is a better form in which to see the shortest route between two points. If you've got a piece of string and place one end on, say, Oman, and the other end on Los Angeles, and then you pulled the string tight on this globe of the world, you have an effect found the shortest route between these two points, and it goes over the North Pole. Yeah, and we call this shortest distance between two points a great circle route, which is significantly different when depicted on a flat map of the Earth or, say, in an atlas. In essence, a straight line flight between two points is depicted as a curve on a flat map. Now, operating this route in reverse from, say, Los Angeles back to the Middle East, we would generally not fly a great circle. Our route would likely come in from over Greenland and into Europe around Norway. Although this is a bit longer than the Great Circle route, the reason for doing so is that the prevailing winds at these lower latitudes, like over Greenland, might be giving us very strong westerlies in the form of jet streams, which means awesome tailwinds, so it's worth flying what appears to be a longer distance than the Great Circle route in order to take advantage of these really strong tailwinds. The next time you see a big curve on the screen of the flight that you're on, it is likely the aircraft is flying a great circle route, and thus the shortest distance. But in reality, it's just hard to change the map of the Earth to show you as a straight line. It's simply easier to use the same map and put a curved line on it, which is actually close enough to the flight taking the great circle route between the two points. So uh, let's, let's chat briefly about airport design and the top 10 airports in the world. So we're looking at uh, this from more of an aesthetics point of view. Obviously, behind the scenes, the efficiencies must be equally superior and beyond the scope of this episode. Yeah, suffice to say, we'll have an episode later on where we'll chat about runway design. Off the internet, there's a website for the 10 most inspirational airports in the world. So if you're going to any of these, it might be worth having a think about why they're in the top 10. They're pretty outstanding. Okay, so the number one, James, do you want to have a go at pronouncing that? Beijing Daxang International Airport. Yep, that's uh, classed as the number one, and it can handle an estimated 100 million passengers, and that's pretty phenomenal. I think that's been recently designed, but it looks pretty impressive, that's for sure. It's the new Uh, Beijing one. Yeah. Number two is Changi Airport in Singapore, where... We used to stay there when we were transiting between England and New Zealand, didn't we, when you were young? That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's a nice airport. Yep, that's a lovely airport. I'm actually going there tomorrow. And that's pretty spectacular inside. And what's number three, James? Denver International Airport. Yep, that's a huge, huge airport. Been there for like an hour. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they say on the website there, they say the uh, roof material drastically reduces the use of artificial daylight, capitalizing on the fact they have 300 days of sunshine each year while reflecting 90% of the solar radiation, thus reducing the solar heat gain. So that's quite impressive. Number four is Madrid Barajas Airport, Terminal 4. It's uh, got light full canyons and natural illumination at lower levels. How about number five? What's number five, James? You know I can't say that word. It's Mumbai. It's in it, Mumbai. You've flown there. You... Is it Mumbai? It's Chhatrapati Shivaji. Yeah, okay, okay, let's say Mumbai. Okay. I've been there. I've actually been into that terminal, and it does look impressive. I think there's a lot of add-ons to it, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. And how are we going here? Let's go to number six is Hamad International Airport, which is a brand-new airport in Doha. 
So that's, yep, that's looking quite impressive. What do you got for number seven? Mactan Sedbu International Airport, Terminal 2, yeah. And that's been designed with well braced to withstand seismic effects and typhoons. So that's all been put into the design because there was obviously a typhoon area. Number eight is built in the sea. That's Kansai International Airport. In some countries, they just don't have the room or it's too mountainous. So they've built airports in the sea. And that's designed to withstand earthquakes. Just within four months of opening, it survived the 6.9 Kobe earthquake with hardly any damage. There's some funny photos on the internet of it flooded. It was regarded as the first ocean airport in the world. What have we got for number nine, James? Queen Alia International in Jordan. Jordan, yeah, that's quite big. I have actually been into the terminal there, and it is a huge terminal. It's built in a modular way so they can do future expansion as required. And what have we got this for last number? This huge. Yeah, Istanbul's new airport. Istanbul's old airport was a nightmare. We landed once there, and it took us an hour and 40 minutes to taxi to the gate where it normally takes five minutes. It's just, it was a nightmare of a place. The new airport I have been to, and it is colossal. It's huge, and it's very well laid out. But I haven't been into the terminal yet. By 2025, they reckon they can handle up to 200 million passengers. That means it would be one of the biggest airports in the world under a single roof in terms of passenger traffic. So just in summary, maybe away from that quick bit of airport design, in this episode, we've discussed about flight planning and the reasons why you may not actually take the shortest route. Some of these reasons, such as overflight charges, prevailing winds, volcanoes, closed airspace. Uh, we also then delved into the world of ETOPS and how it pertains not only to twin-engine aircraft and how reliable they must be, but also just talked about the fire suppression system and how that has an impact on how far away you can actually be from an en route alternate airport. And we then explained why a curve route on a lot of aircraft map displays is actually the shortest distance between two points. We also finished up having a chat about the 10 most inspirational airport designs around the world. So if you're going to one of those places, appreciate it and enjoy it. They look really like some of the really beautiful airports they've designed there, that's for sure. Yes, yeah, so go a bit earlier and just have a little wander around. Yeah, sounds good. So next week, we're going to be talking about air traffic control, aircraft communications, and satellite tracking. That'll be interesting. So from me, on behalf of your ears, thank you very much for listening to us. And from James. Yeah, it's good to be back. And uh, goodbye.